Hi there, it's great to be with you again. We are in this little series on the book of Ephesians. And if you have a, a Bible, you could turn to Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 to 22. Ephesians 2 verses 8 to 22. If you are sharp-eyed and have been listening in carefully these last few weeks, you may already have noticed that that's the exact same passage that Toppy preached from a few weeks back. And if you're really sharp and really keen and eager beaver, you might also have noticed that a year ago I preached on this passage as well. So this is the third time in just over 12 months we've preached from the second half of Ephesians 2. Um, but this time I want to speak from it for a very specific purpose, and that is to help us think about racial reconciliation in the church. And that's obviously related to how Toppy spoke from this text as well. There's a good reason. It is the best text in scripture I know of to speak on that subject. But I want to introduce this by saying that, that, that racial reconciliation in the church is what I'm going to be speaking about from this text. But I also want to admit that it isn't quite what Paul was talking about. I want to explain what I mean by that and why I'm doing it. Paul is talking about reconciliation between Jews and Gentiles, which is not so much a racial issue in the modern sense anyway, as it is a, a religious and an ethnic and a cultural one. You see, race in the modern sense, as many of us know, race is not in that sense in the Bible at all. There is one race. There's the human race. But race, as we understand it today, as a way of categorizing people based on skin color, is a much later invention. It's an invention, really, of early modern and Enlightenment Europeans. It's not a biblical category at all. So I want to be a little careful, even as I introduce this message, that we don't think Paul is talking about what we mean by race in reconciling Jews and Gentiles. But having said that, if we are going to address reconciliation between the races in our world, and given the society we're in, we must, and given the age, the time we're in, we must, there's no better passage in the Bible to speak from on this subject than Ephesians 2, and particularly the second half. And that's, I think, why Toppy and I have both chosen the same text to speak from. That, I hope, just helps you set the, helps set the tone for what we're going to do. Now, many of you will know of Dr. John Perkins. He's probably a familiar name to many of us. It may not be to, to all, but he's the civil rights activist who turned 90 this year. He is a remarkable man. If you've never come across Dr. John Perkins, it's worth giving him a Google and just listening to him speak. Uh, he is a, has an extraordinary life story and has a message that we need to hear in our day. And he was born into a sharecropping family in Mississippi. Sharecropping, if you don't know, is the way really that the American South kept slavery going in all but name, even after slavery was formally abolished. And uh, he, John Perkins was raised by his grandparents who had been sharecroppers. And John Perkins' brother, Clyde, was shot and killed by a policeman as a young black man in Mississippi. And as a teenager, John Perkins was forced to flee the state and make a new life in California because his life was at risk and he had been himself severely beaten by the police and nearly lost his own life in the context of you know, racist abuse in the South. So he, he is a remarkable man and has more reason than most people we know to have a real problem forgiving white people, if I can say that, and many of us do. But John Perkins, I think, is in a good position to make, a, make comments on this issue. He has, my, he has a lot of credibility, I think, with us. Yet at the age of 27, he came to Christ. And he has spent the next 63 years of his life and counting working for the cause of racial reconciliation in the church and in the world. And in that time, he's written 17 books and he has advised five presidents 
So as a, as, a, as a man with a life story, he has a lot of reason why I should want to know what he wants, he's going to say about racial reconciliation. And this is what he says about it. There is no institution more equipped and capable of, giving, of bringing transformation to the cause of reconciliation than the church. But we have some hard work to do. I'll read it again. There is no institution more equipped and capable of bringing transformation to the cause of reconciliation than the church. But we have some hard work to do. Brothers and sisters, I think John Perkins is right. I think Paul would say that he was right. And he gives three reasons why in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. Let's read it together. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. There is no institution more equipped and capable of being transformation to the cause of reconciliation than the church. And the first reason why I think that's true, first reason why that it is in the church and nowhere else that you have the highest hope of achieving racial reconciliation is... Paul says that salvation is by grace and not works. Now, that might sound like a very strange point to make. You think, what on earth has salvation by grace got to do with racial reconciliation? So let's follow the flow of Paul's thought through this passage. Verses 8 and 9 is where we were last week. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this isn't your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So Paul is saying up front, rescue is God's achievement, grace, not yours, works. Now that doesn't mean that we don't work. 
On the contrary, verse 10 says, we are his workmanship created in Christ for good works that he's created for us. So we do work, but the works flow from our salvation. The salvation doesn't flow from the works. That's really crucial, right? The works flow from our salvation. They do not earn it. Grace leads to works. It's not that works lead to grace. And that's where we are at the end of verse 10. Now, the next word at the start of verse 11 is crucial. Therefore, remember that you were separated from Christ, but now you've been brought near and reconciled to one another. All right, so any form of reconciliation in the human race, including racial reconciliation, Paul would say, you need to understand that the therefore in this sentence, that salvation is by grace and not works, but you still need to work. And as a result of that, you must remember that you yourself were also a long way away from God, but have now been reconciled not only to God, but to one another. And there's an important rule of interpreting the Bible here, which is whenever you see a therefore, find out what it's there for, right? You read the word therefore in verse 11, we need to see, hang on, you're saying everything that flows from this text it goes, is built on the foundation of verses 8 to 10. You're saying that salvation by grace not works, and the fact that when we work, we do it out of grace, not in order to get grace, that that is foundational for everything you're going to say in verses 11 onwards. And he is, because he's saying that because salvation is by grace, not works, therefore you need to remember that you are not entitled to the kindness of God yourselves, verses 11 and 12. But you were only saved by the cross of Christ, verse 13. And that it is that shared gift of peace with God when you and I didn't deserve it, by the grace of Christ, that grounds your peace with one another, verses 14 to 15. And it's the reason why the hostility between you can't survive. Verse 16. It's really important we see the logic here. Paul is saying, because salvation is by grace and not works, therefore you need to remember you were a long way away from God. All of you, right? All of you were. I was. You were. Every one of us listening to this was a long way away from God, without hope and without God in the world. And God, by his grace, not because of our achievement, has reconciled us to God and reconciled us to one another. And in that sense, the history of hostility and wickedness between human beings, from anti-Semitism to white supremacy to whatever else you want to name, is small, it's actually minuscule, compared with the history of hostility and wickedness from human beings towards God. And if God can reconcile you to God, then he can reconcile you to each other, Paul is saying. Now, as I said, in Paul's day, he's talking about Jew and Gentile. In our day, he might be talking about white and black. He might be talking about many other kinds of hostility in the human race. But he says that what God has done in Christ is to reconcile you. And you need to remember this, friends in Ephesus, friends in London. You need to remember that God has reconciled you such a great distance to God that in doing it, he has surely made it possible for you to be reconciled to one another, and that the way he's done it is by bringing you both together in Christ, in one body, to make one new man in place of the two. If Christ has the power to reconcile me to God, he's certainly got the power to reconcile me to my brother or sister. And that is, this is a mundane example, but it happens all the time. This is how fathers bring peace to hostile brothers all the time. Right? This is what I, I literally do this as a dad, right? I have two, this is a picture of me and my sons and probably a very happy day when there was not very much hostility between us. Um, but it is certainly a thing in my family 
that my younger son and my older son face hostility between them. It's a long running biblical theme and we are living in that tradition ourselves in the Wilson house. And sometimes what you do is you bring one of your children to you, the older son, and you say, come here, let me, and you hug him. And you say, right now I want you to come here and hug me. And by bringing both of you to me, I'm gonna bring both of you to each other. Because I am, I am reconciled to you and I'm reconciled to you, you too can now come and be reconciled to one another. That is a mundane example. And it's certainly quicker and easier than it often is in reconciliation in the human race. But the principle remains the same, that God has brought you together, Jew and Gentile in Paul's world, and he's done that by bringing both of them into Christ and making one new man in place of two. He isn't saying, you guys need to work this out. You just need to work it out. He's saying, you need to come to me. And as you come to me, you'll find yourselves much, much closer to each other. And the fact that salvation is by grace and not by works cuts off racial pride and racial bitterness at the knees. Because if salvation's by grace and not by works, I can't think of myself as superior to you. Because I was miles away from God and he saved me anyway. Nor can I hold on to bitterness against you. Because your sin against me is small compared to my sin against God. But if reconciliation was by works, I would be able to feel proud about it, wouldn't I? If reconcil racial reconciliation or any other kind of peacemaking was based on works, I would be able to feel proud about it. And you can see this all the time online. Now, what people can do is they exchange, they say, oh, all right, I won't feel racially superior because that's not really allowed anymore. But instead, what I'll do is I will feel morally superior to whoever it is, rednecks or gammons or cooks or Karens or whoever the latest term is, it'll be another one by the time you've seen this message, no doubt. People do that. We, we say, oh, I'll, I'll exchange, instead of feeling superior towards those people, I'll feel superior towards these other people. But the point is that because salvation is by grace, all of those are off the table for the person who is in Christ. You mustn't do it. You can't do it. If you understood grace, you wouldn't do it. Chest beating is very, very hard, even impossible, if you are face down on your knees. If you are truly humbled before God, you cannot feel proud or vainglorious or superior towards those of other races. It's just impossible. And so for Paul, that therefore in verse 11 is critical because it shows you that racial reconciliation in the church has to be based on all the way down the principle that salvation is by grace and not by works. The second reason I think John Perkins is right that the church is uniquely placed to bring about reconciliation is that reconciliation is by Christ's blood and not by ours. And when enormous evils are perpetrated by one group against another, or where there's a long history of hatred and injustice between two communities, resolving it will almost always involve the shedding of blood. That's tragically true. And you see that in disputed territories everywhere, in Kashmir, in Israel and Palestine, in the Sahel, in Northern Ireland, in many places around the world. And it is a tragic feature of peace processes that they regularly involve the shedding of blood. Our strong sense of justice as human beings tells us that somebody has to die before reconciliation is possible. We feel like we can't just sweep this under the carpet and act like it didn't happen. We think somebody has to pay the price for what's happened here. This injustice is so egregious, so long-standing, so horrific 
that we have to deal with the injustice by dealing by the spilling of blood somewhere. Now, it's never rationalized in quite that way, but that's the instinct that rises up within us. And to a degree, of course, that instinct is correct. But in the gospel, the blood that is shed to make reconciliation isn't ours. It's Christ's. Blood has been shed to secure the reconciliation of people who are long at war and between whom there has been centuries of hostility. But it is the blood of Jesus Christ that is shed and not ours. The power to reconcile people is not in our blood, but in his. Look at the number of times that Paul says it in the key sentence in verses 13 to 16. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Paul is saying again and again, it's his blood, his flesh, his body, his cross, his death, that provides the grounds for reconciliation between the Jews and the Gentiles, between the races, between the sexes, between any groups of people who might be alienated for whatever reason. It is his blood, not ours. Somebody does have to pay the price for what's happened here between Jew and Gentile, black and white, slave and free. And somebody has. At the cross, Jesus took all human hostility and hatred upon himself as an oppressed, marginalized person. On behalf of an oppressed and marginalized people, he took it all upon himself. He absorbed the fullness of its consequences and defeated it in his resurrection. And that makes all the difference to John Perkins. Even when John and his brother are beaten or killed by racist cops, he can seek justice without seeking blood. And he has for many decades because reconciliation is by Christ's blood and not by ours. And it makes all the difference to me. It means that I can admit the racism, the racist history of my people, my country, my own life, past, and even my nation in the present. And I can express my own failings, knowing that I don't therefore have to be, have retributive justice. I don't have to be killed for what I have done or what my people have done. And I know that I don't because reconciliation is by Christ's blood and not by mine. And therefore, I don't have to hide those things. I don't have to pretend they didn't happen. I'm not proud of them, but I can face them and I can say, this has happened and I can talk openly about it with brothers and sisters whose story is completely different from mine. And I can say those things knowing that I am not going to be killed as a result of them because reconciliation doesn't happen by the blood of Andrew. It happens by the blood of Jesus. Hallelujah. Just listen here to John Perkins just express this idea in his own words just for a moment. When I was 27 years old, I met Jesus Christ. I found uh, the, the treasure and the field, and I bought the field. And when you buy the field, you buy the maker, you become a part of the maker. So I, I think I set out to be rich. I think I accomplished it. That's one race and one blood. That's what makes the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, 
able to cleanse us from all sin. He has the human blood in him. That's what the genealogy is about. There's one God. There's one mediator between God and man. That Jesus' blood washes away our sin. What can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make us whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. All oh, precious is that flow. That makes us whiter than snow. There is no other fountain I know. I see this as my finality in terms of the message of redemption. The church is uniquely placed to work for racial reconciliation both because salvation is by grace and not by works, and because reconciliation is based on Christ's blood and not on ours. But the quote I started with from John Perkins goes on to say, but we have some hard work to do. And the reason that is true also comes from Ephesians chapter 2. The reason we have hard work to do, the reason why we can't just avoid this, pretend it's not there, and try and move on regardless, is because we are household members, not strangers. Look at verse 19. We are, we are the family of God, right? We're the body of Christ. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And being part of a household, a family, a building, a temple, means that there are obligations to work things through that do not exist if you're strangers or aliens. There's a whole load of people with whom I might have grievances that I don't necessarily need to work them all through because they're not in my family or household. And weirdly, on the day that I wrote this message, I saw this with very strange clarity because two things happened on the same day. One of them was I was dealing with a complicated situation in my own family, which was really painful. And I was actually thinking about needing to reserve time to work it through at some length with another member of my family and thinking, this is going to be costly, but... I'm, I'm not sure I really want to do this. I'm not sure they really want to do it, but I think we're going to have to do it. And we're going to have to work it through. And it's just, yeah, it's painful and uncomfortable. And you do that because you're members of a household. But on the same day, I went across the road to the supermarket to buy my lunch. And while I was in the supermarket, I happened to see a, um, a guy who'd come round once to do some plumbing for us. And I felt had completely ripped us off. Like, I felt totally stitched up. It's probably the angriest I've ever been with a person I don't know, right? I was furious. We had to stand up around my kitchen. And I don't think I was, I said anything particularly awful. I was just very cross that he was charging us for what I regarded was a completely unreasonable amount, given what he'd done. Anyway, we had to agree. I paid the bill in the end. It all went. But then I bumped it. I saw him in the supermarket just the day I was writing this message. And I walked past him, and I grinned to myself as I thought, I don't really have to go back to that guy and work through reconciliation with him. In the end of the day, I paid the bill, he's got his money, he's happy, I just put it down to experience and think, we won't use that plumber again. That's all we've done, it's fine. And I don't, I actually have forgiven him. But the point is, I don't have to be reconciled, I don't have to become best mates with him, I don't have to get to a point where I can recommend him as a great plumber. Actually, I can just walk off and go and go to the sandwich aisle and ignore him completely because he's not in my household. He's an alien. He's a stranger. But in my own family, I do have to work this stuff through and it might mean painful conversations. See, if you're a stranger, you can hurt someone or complain about it and you can leave knowing that you won't see them again. Or you can complain about them on the internet because you know you'll never have to work it through in person. But if you're a member of a household, if you're a member of a family, if you are part of 
God's house, Christ's body, the Spirit's temple. You can't do that. You have to talk about areas of conflict. You have to repent of pain that you personally have caused. You have to acknowledge historical grievances and difficulties. You have to forgive. You have to heal. You have to walk in love together and pray for one another and celebrate unity. And it's not an option to do what I did with the plumber and just see him and go, oh, I'll leave that for now. I don't need it. You have to work it through because you're a household together. And that can make households painful. And it does sometimes, doesn't it? If we're honest, I never cry except when I'm among my own household. I look back the last 20 years. Every single time I've cried that I can remember, I was in my own household. It makes households painful, but it also makes households places of safety and reconciliation and hope and security where the truth of what God has done for us in Christ gets worked out in person in reality. The reason why I why we have hard work to do in the area of racial reconciliation is not just because of what Jesus has done in forgiving us and restoring us and even in his blood being shed for us. It's that in doing those things, he has made us a family, which means that we have family-like obligations one to the other, not just in the local church, but even in the global church as well. And this local church, if I may say, is just an astonishing example of that. I have I've only been in this church four and a bit years. I have learned so much while I've been here about racial reconciliation in, the, in those four and a bit years. Now, even the last six months, right, through personal conversations and staff teams and book groups and phone calls and discussion forums that have been set up and leadership teams and theological studies and Sunday meetings and online. And I've had multiple conversations that have helped me see... Okay, I didn't see, I hadn't seen that that way. That's caused a problem here. And, oh, I need to apologize or I need to restore. I mean, I need to make right. And that kind of thing's happening all the time to many of us. And there's still a lot of it to do. And the devil is working very hard to make humanity divided by race rather than united by blood. And he's getting all kinds of help in our day from politicians and professors and principalities and powers. But we stand on salvation by grace and not by works. And we are reconciled by Christ's blood and not by ours. And our saviour came to create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and to reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. And therefore, brothers and sisters, we do have the resources to work towards increasing levels of reconciliation. We also have an obligation to do it. And by his spirit, we have the power to do it, knowing that his promise to his people is that all of us have been incorporated into the house of God, the body of Christ, and the temple of the Holy Spirit. In him, we have become one. And now we have the joy, as well as some of the discomforts and troubles, of working it out so that the world may see what oneness looks like. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for giving us these astonishing foundations to work for peace in the world. Not just in the area of race, actually, in all areas, but the, the salvation that comes by grace, the reconciliation that comes through your blood and not ours, the identity of being the family of God. Thank you for those privileges. And Lord, I pray that corporately, not just as individuals hearing this and as family members hearing this or friends, that we would hear it as part of the body of Christ together. We would hear and we would be empowered to continue the work 
working towards peace, working towards mutual understanding, working towards death to self, to pride, to bitterness, to sin, to whatever it may be, but to come to places of healing, wholeness, forgiveness, inclusion, love. Lord, I pray would your spirit help us that one day when that great multicultural, multi-ethnic, multicolored body of worshipers is gathered around the throne of the Lamb that we would be able to celebrate together. Look at what the blood of Jesus has done. Look at what the one blood has done in our lives and the lives of those we love. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.